0: Okay. So Prashad is also the director of Tricontinental Institute, which seeks to bridge academic production and political and social movements. He is chief correspondent for the independent media channel Globetrotter, um, and a columnist for Indian Frontlight magazine. And Prashad is also the chief editor of Left Word Books, focused on Marxist and leftist theory from India and South Africa. So welcome, Prashad, again. It's a pleasure to have you with us. So we are here today to hear from and discuss with you about colonialism, a term, a term that Nkrumah, the independence fighter and first president of Ghana defined in 65 as the prevailing, prevailing social formation in previous colonies, which have its economic system and does its polit- political policy directed from the outside from outside of the country. In this thematic, we would also like to approach uh, the relationship between developed and less developed capitalist countries today, the uni or multipolar uh, world order and the current importance of national sovereignty issues. So now I give the word to you, uh, Prashad, uh, who will expose his view on the topic and then we will all have time to pose questions and discuss.
1: Okay, great. Look, it's great to be with German communists. Unbelievable. Uh, Who would have thought it? Um, You know, old Karl Marx thought that the revolution would start in Germany. Well, I know that 100 years ago, great comrades in Germany tried to make a revolution, but they were crushed, Um, not by the far right, but by the social democrats, as it turned out. Um, And then, of course. German communism was severely repressed until um, the quite glorious experiment of the um, East German or the German Democratic Republic, um, which, by the way, only lasted 45 years. I, I would like to say I am older than the German Democratic Republic. Um, it's amazing how in 45 years um, so many interesting things were done. And I want to commend you to go and visit the website of EFDDR, um, which is trying to, in a way, recover um, a memory of the GDR, a memory that has been, I think, quite effectively suppressed um, after the so, you know the reunification of Germany. So please go back and have a look at um, the EFDDR website. The material is in German, it's in English, and so on. Very interesting material. The, the next study that will come out from EFDDR is about the healthcare system um, in, in the GDR. And I really think it's important to look at that study. This is a lot to be gained uh, nowadays, in particular after the experience of the pandemic, when we saw capitalist healthcare systems collapse. Um, and I very much hope that the communists in Germany will find a way to um, use the material in that text to, um, you know, to, to campaign in a way for better healthcare systems. Um, in in your country, in your country which um, is suicidally in the middle of a conflict, which is going to raise fuel and food prices uh, out of the you know hands of ordinary people. Um, imagine now what will happen to your healthcare systems. Uh, you will soon be restarting coal plants and nuclear plants, and God knows you may have to burn down the black forest and create charcoal. Um, you know it's a suicidal policy by this government in Germany. And I and I just wanted to say that before I get going. Um, look, the revolution didn't take place in Germany, but it did take place in the Tsarist empire. It did take place in China, in Vietnam, in Cuba, um, in poor countries, in countries where the productive forces had not been well-developed. Um, it's incredibly difficult to make a revolution in a poor country um, because the general Marxist understanding is when the productive forces develop, they come and clash with the social relations of production, at which point the socialization of wealth, the socialization of production systems and so on gets on the table. In other words, a advance to socialism is basically only possible when the productive forces have been quite well developed. Those countries where the productive forces were developed, my friends, didn't advance to socialism. Rather, It was countries where the productive forces had been held down by colonialism, um, where the advance took place to socialism. And this is actually um, a theory provided to us by Lenin. There's a reason why Ho Chi Minh, when he reads Lenin, gets so excited. Um, You know, he used to joke, old Ho Chi Minh, that Marx's capital provided him with a pillow when he lived as a poor man in France. Uh, It's a joke, obviously. Uh, It's hard to sleep on capital, Uh, It's not the most comfortable pillow, Um, but it was Lenin's writings where Lenin said that advanced capitalist um, countries which have empires are simply not going to develop the productive forces in their colonies. So if you're waiting for the productive forces to develop, it's not going to happen, which is why Lenin argued that Marxists and communists need to have a dual agenda in the colonized parts of the world, fight for national liberation in other words fight for sovereignty and at the same time try to advance to socialism in other words fight for dignity i mean that's the reason the tradition that i belong to is a marxist leninist tradition um, because we understand fully um, the nature of the world economic system and how colonialism operates colonialism operates to um, take away people's sovereignty and if you don't have sovereignty it's difficult to generalize dignity in the in the public um, that is why the colonial question is so central, not because we resent Europeans or anything. You know, it's not for some emotional reason, although sometimes I do feel a little emotional about these things. I'll admit to you uh, today on Twitter, I posted a little drawing that if you have Twitter, go and look at it. Uh, it's about, you know, one of those little Miss drawings. And it says little Miss always ruins the vibe but she keeps talking about colonialism. So, I mean, I get it. There's a little of that. But this is based in a theory, the theory that large parts of the world, billions of people under colonial conditions simply cannot advance their productive forces if they merely try to develop capitalist relations, that they need to have a breakthrough um, and that we need to construct a form of socialism that is not saying we will just socialize the productive forces, socialize social wealth. We're in fact going to have to develop it as well. That poses a lot of challenges for people, you know, uh, because we then have to acknowledge that socialism is a set of experiments. It's not like a road map that, you know, we got from the 19th century and we're trying to put into play. Um, All these debates about whether, say, China has returned to capitalism or whether it was all any at any point ever socialist. All these debates I find a little annoying because principally we know that at least the current Chinese leadership, whatever one thinks of, of the generality, a leadership of a country of 1.4 billion, a communist party of 96 million members. This leadership is generally committed to socialism, you know, and again, socialism will have many different definitions in a country which in 1949 experienced incredible devastation thanks to a world war that ran from 1937, guys, Till 1949, you know, that's the longest Second World War on the planet. Uh, Europe's World War was generally from 1939 to 1945. Um, You know, Spain perhaps had a war that started earlier, of course, the Civil War, but that's a separate conflict. Um, China's World War starts with the Marco Polo Bridge incident, 1937. And it really doesn't end till 1949. That's the longest world war. The country was devastated. So then, you know, you can't have some sort of textbook understanding of socialism from 1949 onward. You're going to have to construct something. Same in Cuba. Um, you know, the country was invaded in 1961, less than two years after the revolution. Um, they had no way of constructing socialism because they had no capital. So they had to come up with interesting methods. They had to experiment, in other words. A lot of socialist development in the third world uh, required a great deal of experimentation. I've just published some of the writings of Ho Chi Minh. In the introduction, I make a lot of the fact that Comrade Ho Chi Minh nonstop, you know, from the 19, at least 1945. Until his death in 1969, Ho Chi Minh wrote about the difficulty, the great emotional and moral difficulty of constructing socialism in a colonial context. You know, you're, you're fighting against a war machine that is trying to destroy you. You know, all these young socialist countries, the capitalists tried to destroy them immediately, whether it's the Soviet Republic, you know, surrounded by the white armies, by European forces and so on, you know, the Vietnamese, the French return, then the Americans come in. Um, the, the Chinese also face the white armies, and even till today they face, face a vicious opposition to anything they do. And then Cuba, um, garroted, you know, strangled from 1960 at least until the present day. Uh, today in the evening I'm going to do an event with the Cuban foreign minister Bruno Rodriguez, uh, and Bruno, you know, has recently been he spoke in New York at the United Nations talked again about the fact that the whole world seems to be opposed to the blockade, but the U.S. is still able to maintain it. Um, you know, people who tell me, why do you use terms like imperialism? It's such an old-fashioned, out-of-date concept. Try to give me a better way of understanding what the United States is doing to Cuba. Give me a better theory and I'll adopt your concept. You know, you, you just don't have a better theory. Um, you know, the best theory is, in fact, the theory of imperialism, okay? So that's an entry point. Um, and I've already given you two concepts that I'm going to now make something of. And these are the concepts of sovereignty and dignity. You see, in the third world, with the absolute imprint of Marxism, you've got to understand that the Marxist influence in third world politics wasn't just with the communists. It was with the National Liberation Forces, many of them. Uh, had the imprint of Marxism on them because two key concepts that comes out of Marxist-Leninism become crucial to understanding left third world politics and the communist movement in the third world. What are those concepts? I've already mentioned them. Sovereignty and dignity. These are two key concepts. Without them, can't understand the fight against um, imperialism. Number one, sovereignty. It's a simple idea. A country or a region must be able to have sovereign control of its territory, must be able to have sovereign control over its policy. Um, you know, territory, well, in colonial conditions, the territory can be taken from you. You know, for instance, even today, we have countries that experience colonialism. For instance, the Western Sahara, the Sahrawi people under colonial uh, conditions, the people of Palestine under colonial conditions till today. The people of Puerto Rico in, uh, in the Caribbean, under colonial conditions till today. And you can draw the list longer. Kwame Nkrumah had the other concept of neocolonialism, where you don't really need to come in and take away somebody's territory, but you can define their policy. You, know, you can construct international instruments that um, suffocate your ability to drive an independent policy. So whether it's colonialism or neocolonialism, the concept of sovereignty is about establishing either your territorial integrity or your integrity in political terms, being able to make your own policy. Okay, So the first concept is sovereignty. Very important concept. Second concept is dignity. And that's what differentiates the left agenda in um, the colonial or neocolonial context from the agenda of the right because if you don't have the concept dignity then you could just have your territory under your control and you know don't care about advancing the social development of people um you can just control a country you say we established its its sovereignty but you don't care about the dignity of people um so the second concept is very important particularly for socialists to fight to establish the concept of dignity alongside sovereignty what does that mean it means that we want to eradicate or transcend the obstinate facts of people's lives like illiteracy, hunger, lack of health care, lack of housing, lack of leisure, lack of education that allows you to have a decent cultural life and so on. Basic things, by the way, it's hardly you don't need to be a socialist to believe these things. What I'm repeating to you are the 17 sustainable development goals of the United Nations which is a treaty obligation of all the 193 countries in the world. They are all committed to ending hunger, to ending illiteracy, to ending this, that, and the other thing. But they don't seem to do anything about it, you know, or at least not enough. Um, and our commitment is to totally transcend these things, not to say we're continuing to try to do something about it. It is an embarrassment that the richest countries in the world, the United, Nation, uh, United States, Japan, um, United Kingdom and so on have people who are homeless, um, who, pe- who still have people who are illiterate. Um, you know, it's extraordinary uh, that these are the conditions of life for the precarious populations, you know, who for whom commute times are long. Insecurity about jobs are long. They are unable to develop their own culture. You know, that's a matter of dignity. Your, your sense of culture is eroding. Um, You don't have time to build a collective life and so on. Um, So these two concepts of sovereignty and dignity, they are key to our kind of of Marxism, to our kind of politics. It's very interesting when I listen to Marxist talk, sometimes they talk at a level of theory which forgets that our general um, political orientation is to transcend the really horrible conditions in the world today. You know, it's not to establish the best analysis only of like, you know, finance. It's to transcend the conditions of today. And I very much want you not to have a scholastic attitude towards Marxism or towards the socialist movement. We mustn't be scholastic about what we're doing. We must never forget that our purpose is to transcend this horrible condition of people's lives. Okay, let me give you an example to uh, highlight a little bit about the concepts of sovereignty and dignity. Take the case of Zambia. I often talk about Zambia because Zambia is an extremely rich country on the African continent. It's rich with copper. Copper is so important. We wouldn't be able to talk here without copper. Copper is in the wires. It's in the internal makings of my computer and your computer. Um, it's in all your phones and so on. It's an extremely important uh, metal. Yet we don't hear much about it. Uh, um Zambia is one of the major producers of copper. But um, thanks to the work of multinational corporations from Switzerland, from Canada, the United States, China, and so on, um, the processing of copper is not happening in Zambia. It is being exported almost as a raw material. Now, interesting, Zambia, which has copper, is such a rich country and yet continues to have to go back to the International Monetary Fund and beg to help it with its situation of external debt in fact this year zambia has returned to the international monetary fund imf has created an agenda for zambia where the imf again has taken over policy making for zambia so the sovereignty is compromised even though zambia has its own government um, in economic policy terms it has to bend to imf policy and by the way in the 21st century if your economic policy is taken over by an external actor, so are all your other policies, because, you know, you got to finance the other departments. And if, um, if the IMF is saying, no, you have to cut funding for education, that means the person who's running the Department of Education, they don't have any sovereignty in their department either, because the checks that get cut to their department come from the Department of Finance, which is controlled by Washington, D.C., Okay, so the IMF says, come and do austerity. By the way, three very good reports have come out over the last six months that have shown during the pandemic, the IMF continued to push austerity programs in Africa, some parts of Latin America, and in some parts of Asia. It's a scandal. I mean, that the International Monetary Fund uh, has driven austerity politics during the pandemic. Look how Western countries were allowed by international finance uh, to provide even modest forms of um, of uh, of relief for people. You know, look at that. Go back and look in Germany at the height of 2000, uh, 2020, 2021 even, what provisions were made by the government for people who are unemployed and so on. Such latitude was allowed in Europe, but in Africa, none was allowed. Um, the governments were told, that you have to pay off the wealthy bondholders before you provide relief to your public. Do you know that in Botswana, Botswana will have uh, the second vaccine, that means let's say complete coverage, second vaccine, 70% of people in Botswana Mm -hmm. will have their second vaccine in 2020, Mm -hmm. in 2,223. At the rate of vaccination now, In 200 years, they will reach 70% of second vaccine. Can you think about that, please? It's unbelievable. That's the planet we live on now. Every time I hear European leaders, like even, you know, the German leadership now talk about, oh, you know, we've got to do this and help that. It's all nonsense. It literally is nonsense. Even they don't believe what they're saying. You know? That kind of pseudo-liberalism that comes from the mouths of these leaders. Olaf Scholz now, um, Emmanuel Macron was booed in Algeria when he arrived there. He was booed. They yelled at him, told him, France, go home. That's the attitude in the world now. People are fed up being bullied by European countries, by the United States and so on. People are fed up because of this. You know, because of this kind of IMF attitude and so on. Now people are saying enough. We are not interested. Okay. Why are people caught in this IMF debt trap? Because they had no choices until recently. They had no choices. Your sovereignty had been compromised because you had no choices. Because you didn't have the capital and you didn't have the political strength in your country to say, wait a minute, we are going to develop our own resources. We are going to process our own resources. Any time a country in the third world has gone this road, they have faced the greatest violence. Most recently in 2019, you know, Bolivia decided they have a large lithium, one of the largest lithium reserves in the world after Chile and to some extent, quite similar to Argentina. Bolivia decided under the leadership of Evo Morales, we are going to develop our own lithium. We're going to make our own batteries. In fact, we're going to make our own cars. And that's what they did. They made their own car. I don't know if you know that. Bolivia made its own battery. It made its own car, electric car. Two weeks after Evo Morales drove one of these test cars off the factory floor, there was a coup in Bolivia. Why? Because they just don't tolerate you if you try to make your economy sovereign and if you are pledged to your dignity. Violence against these countries is incredible. You know, governments routinely getting overthrown. And people abroad say, well, you know, they have problems. Morales was there so long. You know, I used to tell, I told Evo Morales actually right after the coup, I was like, listen, Evo, it's interesting that, you know, I read in the press, including in the so-called left press, that Evo Morales has overstayed his welcome. Nobody said that about Angela Merkel. Angela Merkel was the chancellor of Germany longer than Evo Morales was the president of Bolivia. But he's just an indigenous guy. He's just an indigenous guy, left-wing indigenous guy. You can coup him. Remember what Elon Musk then wrote, we can coup anybody we want. You try to establish your sovereignty, you try to establish a policy of dignity, they come after you. Again, why are you using the word imperialism? It's so out of date. Give me a better theory. Give me a better explanation of why the US government in 2019 overthrew the government of Evo Morales. Give me a better explanation. I don't have it. When Chile, where I live, where I put the um, uh, referendum before the people for a new constitution, it was on Sunday, the 4th of, um, of September. That morning, in the Sunday newspaper, the Washington Post in Washington, D.C., in the United States, had an editorial asking the people of Chile to reject the constitution. Okay, that's a United States newspaper telling the people of Chile, reject the constitution. Do you know what the first word of that op-ed was? Not op-ed, the editorial. What was the first word? Can anybody guess? The first word of the op-ed or the editorial was lithium. That was the first word, lithium. Lithium is a major blah, blah, blah. Why? Because the constitution called upon the government to have better control over the lithium. Lithium was the first word. Give me a better framework to understand these things that are happening where countries are not being allowed to establish their sovereignty. And if you can't establish your sovereignty, you can't establish your dignity. 60% of the children who walk On the Copper Belt of Zambia. The Copper Belt is a region of Zambia. Can you imagine? It's named the Copper Belt during colonial times. The Copper Belt region of Zambia 60% of the children that walk on top of the copper don't know how to read. I was told this by a minister of education in Zambia 60%. They are providing copper, their parents are sending copper so that you and I can talk through this computer. But the children who live above the copper can't read. And why can't they read? The minister of education was almost crying when telling the story. Why? Because he doesn't have money in his budget to create good schools. Why doesn't he have money in his budget to create good schools? Because Zambia can't get a good price for the copper, even though copper prices are high. Why is that the case? Because companies use methods like transfer pricing and so on to basically steal from the raw material producers. And therefore, because the countries can't earn enough revenue and it's a landlocked country and has to import oil, it goes into debt. When it goes into debt, it has to ask the IMF for funding. When the IMF gives funding, they say, cut your education budget. And so these children in the copper belt can't read. Now something interesting is happening. And I'll wrap up now. Now something interesting is happening, my friends. And and here's where we come to a really controversial issue in world affairs. For the first time in a very long time, I would say in 200 years almost, these countries have a real choice. You see, when the Soviet Union was there for 70 years, from 1917 to 1991, Soviet Union provided the third world a shield as much as it could, but not 100%. But the Soviets themselves didn't have an enormous amount of surplus capital to help in development projects. They helped some things, but their surplus capital for overseas development was not high. You know, in fact, uh the German Democratic Republic provided surplus capital, some of its surplus capital for development projects around the world. You may not know that, but EFDDR will do a study about this later. Um, anyway, now there's a choice. For reasons I don't have time to get into, suddenly the Chinese have an enormous surplus. And Chinese private capital, Chinese parastatal capital, and Chinese government capital is eager to lend abroad and they lend at much better terms than the IMF. They also produce infrastructure, which is cheaper than that imported from Europe and the West. Many countries around the world are now eager to become part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And this has created a serious crisis for the West. The West's problem with China isn't Xinjiang and the Uyghurs. It's not Hong Kong. I mean, if The West worried so much about Hong Kong. Why wasn't the West saying anything when Hong Kong was a British colony? The West is not that bothered about Taiwan for itself. In fact, if they cared about the people in Taiwan, this is the wrong attitude to take to try to exercise a war in the South China Sea. The West doesn't care about the Chinese people, the Tibetans. All of that is nonsense, guys. Don't fall for that. There may be terrible things happening, but that's not the reason why Anthony Blinken, U.S. Secretary of State is so concerned about events in China. What they're really concerned about is that China is economically outflanking the United States, not only in terms of overseas development and so on, but even in terms of the production of high tech goods, 5G through Huawei and other companies. That's an existential challenge to particularly U.S. capital. It's a serious existential challenge. The United States is preparing, is is actually, the United States doesn't mind going into an armed conflict with China to prevent it being outflanked economically. It's really interesting that now the US government is saying they want to create domestic chips, you know, computer chips, semiconductor chips, because most of them are prepared in China, in the world, uh, made in China, by German, Taiwanese, Chinese companies. The U.S. says now we're going to make good luck with that. You can't Biden can't pass a one trillion dollar infrastructure bill to improve bridges and roads and so on in the U.S. How are they going to get the money to actually produce the next generation of semiconductor chips? Good luck with that. Go and do that. If you want to compete with China, compete with them economically. The world will actually um, will welcome that. But we don't want to be drawn into a cataclysmic annihilationist world war between the United States and China to save U.S. companies. For God's sake, you know, again, what an archaic term you're using, imperialism, neocolonialism. Kwame Nkrumah used that in 1965. Don't you have a better theory? Give me a better theory. Give me a better theory. I'll stop talking like I belong in the 19th century. Until you have a better theory for me, this is it, guys. Thanks a lot.
0: Thanks a lot, Prashad. Yeah. Very dynamic input. Don't call me Prashad. Call
1: me Vijay, please. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Yeah.
0: It's a German thing. Um, No worries. It just makes
1: me uncomfortable. I don't know who you're talking to. (laughs) You know, because in India, Prashad is also a first name. Okay, sorry. Yeah, it's okay.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um, yeah, so now we have room for questions and of course, uh, further discussion about the issues that we are here to discuss. So I would like to invite everyone who wants to contribute to the discussion to come here for
2: forward and then we can go on. Don't be shy.
3: Um, all right, can you hear me? okay, cool um so I guess simple question um we've seen in history, even like the Western communists uh fail in some way of dealing with uh colonial issues we We can just talk about the French Communist Party in algeria yeah uh is this how would you um describe these failures? Is it a permanent thing? Is it the responsibility of i don't know diaspora? In the west to deal with it is there a specific theory that needs to be part of the baseline of a communist movement in the west um yeah that's the question
4: um first thanks a lot bj for your thrilling input and uh well my question is about um well we're talking about the theory of imperialism you know and uh, imperialism. imperialism is not it's a theory that works um, with the um, means of reality, you know, the uh, concrete um, genesis of uh, the world we live in today, the concrete history, that's the material of which we form a theory with. And uh, I'm interested in um, what do you think, in what way is the Western imperialist hegemony hegemony imprinted to the imperialist imperialist world we live in today? Um, And um, yeah. In what way is, is it possible even for another country, maybe, for example, Russia or uh, uh, any other country, to actually evolve in a equal way that the Western imperialist countries have over centuries? Yeah. Yeah. Hello, Vijay.
3: Thank you for your awesome speech. There are many communists and in the whole left in Germany, people that fear that the new imperialist powers will be Russia and China. When the US declines and they will take charge, could you think of things that you can say to take this fear away from
1: them? You Listen, can also, you can also it, oh. say something now if you want. No, no, no. I like these are excellent, important. These are all very important questions. The first one is, is the one I'm, I, I can go pretty quick with. The others are a little longer, but they're related. So that's a good thing. Um, You know, thank God for the Communist International. I can tell you that. Um, I've studied this stuff a lot and edited a volume where I had Friedrich Peterson write about um, the colonial question and the the Communist International. You know, it, it was because of the kind of Leninist position that structures the Communist International that suddenly these parties in France, in Britain, uh, were faced with a problem. Moscow was telling them, you know, I have a big problem with Moscow tells because there should never be a center of international anything, you know. Um, But in this case, I was pleased to read this stuff. Moscow would insist that the French Communist Party had to take a position on the colonial question Um, and France would dither, you know, the PCF would dither for years. They wouldn't send a representative to discuss these things. Then the, the Comintern insisted that the Communist Party in uh, Palestine had to have more Palestinians because it was majority Jewish party. They insisted, you've got to go and recruit the Arabs. You've got to Arabize the party. What, that was the phrase. They insisted with the, um, the South African Communist Party, that was the original name, they insisted that that party and Tom Lodge's new book goes over this insisted that they Africanized the party because they were all white, um, you know, in the early period. So inter- interestingly, the theory of Leninism, which was imprinted in the common Turn, forced the parties around the world to have to address racism. Let's face it, they had to address racism, uh, not just imperialism, racism. Because even our comrades in different countries felt that they needed to tutor the Africans or tutor the Arabs or, you know, tutor the Algerians. Um, they were not entirely always seeing them as equal. And this is a history we have to deal with. You know, we have to be honest with it and deal with it, um, come to terms with it and so on. I must say that that the history of the um, the Communist Party in Germany is different um and especially in the in the in the gdr because i don't know if you know this and again more texts are going to come out on this but the gdr played a key role in training and educating people in national liberation movements outside berlin there was a camp in fact where members of the south african liberation forces um, angolans and others would come and train there under gdr um, you know, uh, technicians and a lot of people from Africa and Asia came to uh, G- the GDR to university, uh, particularly to study engineering and so on, to take those skills back um, to help advance socialism. Uh, it, you know, Germany in that way was lucky that at least for that 45-year period, um, you had, uh, you know, this one part of the country. But I must say that when you look at the Federal Republic, the left forces were very weak uh, on anti imperialism except in the war in the struggle against the us war on vietnam uh, very powerful participation of all the left currents in, across europe so i don't feel like you know there's a, there's a problem that we should dismiss the question you raised is a real serious question and in the heart of that i think is the history of racism more than anything you know this Lack of belief that people in these barbaric places in the world can actually make socialism. Um, that attitude, uh, I think, continues to exist. And by the way, a lot of the kind of yellow peril fear mongering about China is rooted in that racism. Uh, and we need to really, uh, you know, acknowledge that. Um, look, frankly, the Chinese Communist Party, as I've told you, has 96 million members. Um, I don't know how big your groups are, but In a group of five leftists, there are five opinions, okay? Uh, Unless you believe that Chinese are robots and that 95 million of them all walk in the same way, like, you know, in that science fiction show, like the Borg, uh, that's a racist attitude. That means you don't believe that the Chinese uh, have a possibility of independent thought. That, I'm afraid, is a racist attitude. Um, My experience with Chinese communists is that 95 million of them have, well, at least 25 or 30 different schools of thought, if not 95 million opinions. Um, They fight like crazy about what they believe and how to advance things. Xi Jinping represents one section of the party, you know, which now is um, not even, I don't even think it's a majority of the party, uh, but it's the most prestigious section of the party. Um, So we have to really get and acknowledge some of these racist ideas, you know, Um, that are there. I mean, they're nobody's fault. You know, they are part of our history and heritages. Uh, So you can't just say, well, I'm not a racist. You know, these ideas exist and they must be acknowledged. Now, about the question of imperialism. um, See, it's interesting. Um, We should listen to what people are saying. Um, And, you know, the Chinese in particular make it very clear. They don't want to become like the hegemon of the world. Uh, They have made it clear that we want the U.S. hegemony to end, and then we want to establish some sort of, you know, regional organizations and have a whole bunch of, you know, what some people call multipolar kind of world. Um, but actually, they want the establishment of the United Nations as the principal body for um, conflict resolution. Not, not, multipolar means the world breaks up into, you know, its own continents. That's not the way. The way is that there should be more democracy in world affairs. Um, you know, Putin came to Munich in 2007, gave a speech saying, we don't want any single master. Very important speech. The first speech where he criticized the United States. It doesn't look like they have an appetite to become like a new, um, you know, um, primus inter pares, you know, first among equals and so on. There's no appetite for it. Um, and I'll give you one evidence for that. You know how the United States people talk about the American dream, And they say the American dream is exported. Everybody in the world wants to become like an American. You know, Xi Jinping, a few years ago, I think in 2017, went to Xi'an, I believe, and gave a speech on the Chinese dream. I thought that's interesting. Is she going to say the whole world wants to live like Chinese? No. In fact, what Xi Jinping said in his speech was that the Chinese dream is for the Chinese to be a sovereign people without poverty. It's the dream about China. It's not a dream about world domination. It's not even a dream about making the world culturally Chinese. Their dream is about a Chinese sovereignty. No more century of humiliation. It's a specific dream. So do we take the word of people seriously? I think it's a good idea. They are saying we don't want it. Now, second, there's a big difference between aggression and imperialism. The Russians entered Ukraine. That's an aggression. That's a military aggression. But it's not imperialism. Um, It's not imperialism because, in fact, is there really an economic gain? Like, what are the Russians going to gain from that entry into Ukraine? Is that driven by some sort of material gain? It's unlikely. In fact, I think it's a negative for them in some respects. Some respects, it could be positive in that they reintegrate with the rest of Asia rather than attempt to integrate with Europe which has been for them a failed gambit. Um, but And that's to Europe's, um, it's going to have negative consequences for Europe, actually. But anyway, um, I don't think it's imperialism, it's aggression. They have invaded another country. Ukraine is a member of the United Nations. Russia crossed the border into Ukraine. Now, whatever you, what I'm saying is a factual point. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's just that that's what it is you cross the borders of another recognized country, it's an act of aggression um, because there's no UN Security Council mandate. In the same way as the United States war in Iraq was a war of aggression. Thought it was funny that Joe Biden, US president, said that you know no country has committed aggression, only Russia. Well, Mr. Biden, you voted in the US Senate to attack Iraq illegally. And that word illegal is not my word. It was used by Kofi Annan, U.N. Secretary General in 2004 when he called the U.S. war on Iraq illegal. So it's an act of aggression, but is there any material gain for the Russians? I don't think so. So I think one has to be a little specific. You know, the use of the term imperialism isn't a moral use. You know, you know how we sometimes call somebody a fascist. Sometimes you use that in a kind of with moral indignation. But one has to also be specific about it. Somebody might be a jerk. They may not be a fascist, uh, but we just call them fascists out of a kind of moral anger. Um, People are using that term in indignation, but it's not accurate. Um, What is taking place in Ukraine is not an imperialist war by any means. And I don't think even the Chinese are are imperialists. They are keen on something other than than that. Um, So in that sense, what is Let me spend a minute or so talking about what I think is happening in Eurasia with these conflicts around Russia and China. Um, I think the West underwent two major crises which it was not able to solve. And by West, I include Germany. One, the capitalist crisis of 2007-2008 was quite horrendous for Western capital. Because since then... Um, not only have growth rates remained pretty low in most countries, um, but the production of uh, finished goods in these countries has not increased. They continue to be, in a sense, financiers of a global production line, uh, leaving themselves vulnerable, you know, in a way. But more than anything else, continuing to be largely financial economies um, and allowing their rich, to park their finances in illicit tax havens. There's about $40 trillion sitting in illicit tax havens, uh, money mostly of the Western wealthy. Secondly, by four, at least three catastrophic conflicts, um, the United States and Europe destroyed Europe's energy um, plans. What were these conflicts? The war on Iraq, 2003, the sanctions policy against Iran, 2006, and the war on Libya 2011. These three conflicts basically cut off Europe from any hope of getting a sustainable energy supply um, from North Africa and from West Asia, which is why Europe, particularly Germany, became increasingly reliant um, upon Russian energy supplies. 34%, 33% German energy was coming through um, the Russians. And the plan was for Nord Stream 2 to, in fact, lift the percentage. So what happened after the capitalist crisis of 07 and then these catastrophic wars was that Europe was faced with a historical choice. And interestingly, there was no public debate about this. What was the choice? Number one, Europe could continue its integration with North America, particularly the United States, the great Atlantic project, NATO at the heart of it. To some extent, the European Union at the heart of it. Um, Europe beginning to import liquefied natural gas from the United States, an incredibly carbon footprint heavy um, energy policy. But that's one part of one choice. The other choice was for Europe to integrate with Asia. Um, This was the big Eurasian integration. Energy from Russia and capital through Belt and Road from China. And in fact, without having a public democratic discussion in Europe, Europe began to move into a kind of historical integration with Asia, the great period of Eurasian integration. 17 European countries joined China's Belt and Road. Russia begins to provide a large part of the possibility for Europe to get out of coal and get out of nuclear. Germany's entire post-coal, post-nuclear was premised on natural gas from Russia, frankly. The whole Green Party agenda is basically to get natural gas from Russia, but they don't talk about it like that. You know, they live in la-la land. They are completely clueless about uh, about these matters, you know, uh, which is why they have to now return. You've got a Green Party guy running the climate ministry who's going to have to sign off on restarting coal-fired plants. I mean, look at the la-la land of that political formation. Um, so the choice was between maintaining the Atlantic integration or integrating with Eurasia. United States put a lot of pressure on Europe to break the link with um, this Eurasian process. Uh, Remember Trump talking to Stoltenberg a few years ago around the question of NATO funding and the natural gas coming from Russia. He said, cut your ties with Russia. That's Trump, who was accused of being an agent of the Russians, funnily enough lecturing Stoltenberg about this. Um, Interestingly, neither the Russians nor the Chinese said cut ties with the United States. It was the United States saying cut ties with Russia and China. And the front lines for this became Ukraine and Taiwan. I don't want to get too much into this, but those became the front lines. I don't believe that this um, Russian entry into Ukraine was about NATO. Um, and about Ukraine perhaps joining NATO. It was about the aggression by the United States to break this historical Eurasian integration. And then on top of that, the U.S. government unilaterally abandoned the Intermediate Nuclear Range Missile Treaty from 2000, in 2019. Right after Trump walked out of that treaty, Putin said, now we need security guarantees. Because what they were worried about was not um, Ukraine joining NATO, but the united states placing intermediate nuclear missiles in in ukraine um it would have become like the cuban missile crisis of of 1962 when the soviets brought missiles to put in cuba um the us went nuts about that but somehow it's okay for the us to imagine putting missiles um in ukraine in taiwan uh, and so on and and that's really To my mind, the heart of what this conflict is, Europe needs to make a decision. Do you want to live in the real world, which is you're going to have to integrate with Asia? Or do you want to live in La La Land? Um, You want to live in La La Land? You'll be burning charcoal in your homes from the Black Forest.
5: Um, Hi, Uh, I'm Angie from the uh, internationalist group. (laughs) Um, I just have a couple comments. Uh, first of all, um, about China. Uh, I thought it was very interesting. I was coming in, like, a little bit nervous, like, okay, Vijay, I don't know what you're gonna have to say about China. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, um, so, uh, it was very interesting what you were saying about, uh, China's relationship with Africa. Um, we find ourselves, um, we're Trotskyists. Um, (laughs) we find ourselves polemicizing a lot, uh, with other people, uh, about, uh, China, uh, basically, uh, you know, various organizations who, uh, uh, define China as an imperialist country because, well, it's a bigger country doing business in, you know, Africa or, uh, semi-colonial countries. Um, but if you compare, um, you know, what China is actually doing in these various African countries that it has, um, these, uh, relationships with, um, you know, you compare that with what the imperialist countries are doing, which is just complete, absolute, just devastation and impoverishment, um, you know, compared to, uh, China, which is building up infrastructure, like, like was mentioned already, um, and, um, forgiving debt, uh, I think about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit less, they just forgave a bunch of debt. What imperialist country would you ever see doing something like that? Um, so it was very interesting to hear about that. Um, we, uh, are of the opinion that, you know, this can happen. Um, China can have this sort of relationship with Africa, um, because it is a bureaucratically deformed worker state. Um, you know, basically, uh, these gains are coming from, um, the revolution in 1949 in China. Um, I'd be really interested in hearing what, uh, you, uh, I didn't, maybe I missed it, but like a sort of, if you could sort of have a classification of China, um, sort of a Marxist, uh, classification of China, be interested to hear what other people, uh, think about that also um yeah um the other thing that i wanted to say uh was about um the stalinist policy of the popular front um um yeah um, <laughs> um so you know we have to learn from history right we have to see that um in china in 1927 there was a revolution that could have been accomplished and and was uh basically strangled um because of the policy of the Popular Front with the so-called progressive bourgeoisie, the Guomintang. Um you know, this was the vanguard of the working class in the form of uh members of the Communist Party who were told, Well, go join the Guomintang, go politically chain yourself uh to this bourgeois party, and it ended up uh with the wholesale just uh maybe wholesale is a little too much, but the slaughter of um many of the leading communists um so i i uh yeah, just wanted to make the point. I think we should learn from history um this policy of the popular front of um two stage revolution first, we have the bourgeois revolution, and then sometime eventually in the future, we have socialist revolution um I would counterpose to that the uh theory of permanent revolution which um actually is uh i think very much in line with um how the bolsheviks were thinking about um about the world's uh, political and economic situation during the time of the russian revolution they were waiting for the more industrialized germany uh to uh german working class to okay okay yeah. well it, well it, the point is just that russia was a backwards developmentally backwards
3: country yeah
5: okay Okay, i'm the next one
0: uh just a little disclaimer uh vj so we are um re- united here as as probably realized communists from different uh orientations uh so when we say we is maybe not it doesn't represent the whole of the group and uh yeah but you you probably noticed that um yeah so i wanted to make a question about um actually also the chinese um the chinese position that you brought up to as i see it very different from the person who spoke before me uh and also different from you um also disclaimer we have we are also here discussing uh some of the positions that we actually see different. So this will probably come up in our questions a lot. Uh, so yes, I would disagree that, uh, because, uh, that China doesn't want to dominate the world in terms of, um, it wouldn't do it if it was able to. Um, I do think that if we understand imperialism as Lenin defined it, uh, so of course, I, I would see that every country, every capitalist country who is developed enough to reach this position would do it. And I will also think that we shouldn't take the Chinese uh, position or the Chinese leaders for their words, uh, as well as Putin when he say that he doesn't want any single master in the world. I think it's more about giving giving an idea of how is the situation, how they see the situation at that point and not how would they like it to be. And I also would like to say that I think that the separation that you did between aggression and imperialism, I also see it differently and I, I, I think that Lenin also defines it like that. You probably noted that, uh, in his text he, he talks very openly against this division between uh, these two things. Now he says that imperialism is aggressive and there is no country that has reached this level of developed capitalism that won't be aggressive because of the the rules of uh, capitalist development. Um Yes, so my question would be, I, uh, as you probably already noticed, I think that if we say that, uh, certain, uh, imperialist or developed capitalist countries, they have, um, different intentions than actually to dominate and to explore the working class in the world, if it, we not put, by saying that, the working class in a trap, which is to choose between the stronger, the less, and the less strong capital country, um, And in a sort of a way to root for them, hoping that the world will become a better place when these capital countries or not only one capital country are um, in power or has most most of the power. And by that, I don't mean, of course, that there isn't a very big difference between American uh, uh, the uh, American capital, if we want, and the other countries that we've been talking about, of course, there is. Um, but I do think that uh, talking about countries in this general term and not talking about the interests of the working class and the bourgeoisie in the countries um, is very helpful for, for the cause of the working class, which I also know is the cost that you brings forward uh, socialism. Um, yes, if you consider also that level in your in your argumentation
6: good afternoon i'm i'm from italy so uh, to 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 add another point just a quick point to uh the the comrade that has spoken before me uh i i agree with her and uh, uh to to emphasize her question i will ask to you uh what is the role of worker parties and communist parties both in western let's say Developed societies and also in, in third world countries, uh, like you mentioned, uh, if uh, the 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 world progress and the the uh, let's say liberation of poor countries from their uh, uh, their bounds of uh, of uh, uh, hunger, etc., is basically uh, trusting those kind of uh, uh, processes which are involving, uh, for example, Chinese monopolies or uh, whatever uh, we consider more progressive right now. So uh, if we uh, stick to these kind of ideas, uh, uh, what's left to do for us communists? If the world uh, will get automatically better, just trusting the Chinese Communist Party, which is the expression of Chinese monopolies, uh, what is our role? So we just quit and start uh, maybe a sport group playing football. So this is just to add some points to that. Thank you.
1: Yeah. I'm actually really glad that you're Italian because I'll start by telling a story about some Italian communists who go to see Ho Chi Minh in 1968. Um, at the end of their meeting, this is just a year before he dies, the Italian communists ask Ho Chi Minh, How do we help the Vietnamese revolution? And Ho Chi Minh said something really interesting, which I would ask you to think about. Ho Chi Minh said, Go home and make your revolution. So it's really interesting to me that um, you know a lot of conversation takes place about in a very scholastic way. How do we best define China, or how do we understand Russia? Um, in to what end are we trying to define Russia and China? To what end, um, you know, is is this? It seems like the first question, in particular sounded to me like it could have come from a different era you know how do you classify the chinese state is it a deformed worker state i mean frankly i'm a different kind of communist i belong to a party the communist party of india marxist we are a large party in india we have a million cadre members we have a lot of disagreements in our ranks um we are in government in the state of kerala uh, you know we are one of the forces that led the big farmers movement that paralyzed the city of Delhi for a year and so on. Our general orientation to the world isn't how do we precisely and mathematically describe other countries. We are interested in trying to best understand what is the real movement of history. Uh, How do we build our own revolutionary developments at the same time as we try to accompany developments elsewhere? I don't want us to get trapped in that old debate between Trotskyites and Stalinists and so on about, you know, what is your precise definition? Is it a state capitalist? Is it a deformed worker state? Is the Communist Party the expression of the monopolies? Go ahead. By all means, have those debates, my friends. But then you will fall into the trap of generations of leftists in North America and Europe that have torn each other apart on issues that are not actually... That important uh, to your own development of your revolution. I'm not telling you go build a sports club. I'm telling you go build your own, you know, links. Root yourself in the working class movements in your own countries. Develop your own revolutionary perspectives. Uh, Our debate today about how to understand China isn't having any impact on what's going on in China. We are. I'm merely trying to understand what's happening in China. Um, I think China is in the middle of a very serious and important process. Um, you know, whether you call it monopoly capitalism or socialism or whatever, it's not relevant to me. I'm trying to understand what's happening in China, not what you think you can classify China as. So I would caution about that debate. Please don't get caught up in those same old debates that, again, have torn left groups in the North apart for generations and generations and generations, starting with how best to tear each other apart over what's happening in the Soviet Union, and then how to best tear each other apart over what's happening in China, and then how to tear each other apart on whether Cuba is a state capitalist entity, as the um, international socialists used to argue. Those debates are not valuable for us or for you. We have to try to understand as factually as possible what's going on. I also don't go to Lenin, you know, in a religious way and say Lenin said this, therefore, um, you know, Lenin may have said a lot of things I don't agree with. Lenin was a human being. Marx was a human being. I don't have a religious attitude to our tradition, frankly. I, I want to understand what, co- here, quoting Marx and Engels in the German ideology, they call the real movement of history. Let's try our best to understand the dynamics taking place now and see how best we can accompany them how we can build the power of the working class in our own societies and so on um, that to me is the best attitude you know uh, i i am not uh, you know uh, uh, often the most precise thinker i'll grant you that but i'm very keen on understanding how best to advance our struggles and that's the starting point so when you say well what's the working class perspective For me, the term is dignity always, you know, uh, are we able to establish the social processes that uh, bring dignity to the class, Uh, both confidence in order to struggle and then the improvements of people's lives at the same time? Um, That's the question of dignity. You know, that's a very fundamental issue for any kind of left project and so on, you know, the issue of like taking people at their word, I don't mean that just because somebody says it, it's true. I merely said that we should also listen to what they are saying. You know, we should not immediately dismiss people Um, because what they are saying might be interesting to listen to. You might learn something from it. Um, The question I would say of, you know, the issue of aggression, it's a pretty interesting thing. Look, you know, there are many instances of militaries crossing a border and acting in a certain way, Um, but they are not all imperialists. You know, for instance, when Vietnam entered Cambodia to end the killing field, um, that was not an imperialist entry. And Hun Sen's government immediately withdrew. Um I mean, sorry, Hun Sen's government that came in, when they came in, the Vietnamese immediately withdrew from Cambodia. It wasn't a territorial grab. They entered to end what they considered to be a genocide, which I agree with them, was a genocide in Cambodia, led by the Khmer Rouge. That's an intervention, you know, that is an aggressive intervention. They crossed the border uh, with the military and so on. So, yeah, all imperialism is aggressive, but is all aggressive imperialism? Um, That's a question I would like to go back and ask Lenin, because what you quoted was that all imperialisms are aggressive. But are all aggressions imperialistic? And I'm not sure. I think that there has to be an economic, a material content to um, imperialism. It's not merely military aggression. Um, You know, when the Cubans sent troops to Angola, was that imperialism? Was that Cuban imperialism in Africa? The Cubans fought on the side of the Angolans to defeat the apartheid South African invasion. Was that an invasion? Was that imperialism? Because the Cubans sent troops there. Um, I don't think so. I think, in fact, it was accompanying the Angolan National Liberation Movement. So, I mean, again, I would say there are lots of interesting examples we can look at historically. And I'm not one to make arguments by analogy, you know, because you have to look at the thing itself to understand it, not always analogize, look at other instances and so on. But I guess the broad point, and I'm sorry to go on so long, the broad point in reference to almost all three of the questions is that let's try to better understand processes in other places and not be so eager to have our old debates between the Trotskyites and the communists and the this and the that. You know, old debates from the 1920s, which are sort of, you go into a book and you bring back the same debate and use the same concepts in a stale way uh, to talk about social reality today. It makes us seem deeply... Irrelevant, by the way, to the very classes we are trying to organize. Um, If I go into a working class neighborhood in India and give a talk um, attacking the deformed worker state in China, uh, I don't know what reaction I'll get. And thank God I've never had to do that. You know, um, I I would talk about the fact that China is in the process and has done something incredible, which India has not done, which is eradicate absolute poverty. And I'd like to understand why is, how is that possible that China could do that, but we couldn't? Uh, that's interesting to people in the class. You know, they are not interested in some bloody carbon copy debate from the 1920s.
7: Hello, everyone. Yeah, I think that for many of us, at least for me, it was not easy to get out of the bourgeois ideology we were all living into, especially we from the West, especially me from a petit bourgeois background, to get out of the stereotypes about Marxism, like the Orwellian shit uh something like this. Stereotypes about liberalism. I think there is a very good book by Dominikos Urda about the uh, counter history of liberalism. And so, uh, even for me, after so many years of politics, it was still astonishing. And also, the reading of Vijay Prashad was also for me was very important. For example, I remember this quote from is Washington Bullets made by César That they really think that liberalism blames Hitler for is that he has done the same thing that they were doing all over the world in Europe. And I think this is really important to remember. And then the last step for me was to understand what was for real, the real existing socialism. I think when someone has done that, then science can begin. Then we can still, then we can make a step further from getting rid of ideology, Understanding our dream, our utopian, and then get from utopian to socialism as Marx and Engels asked us for to do. And it's not because of lack of uh, interest in human values, dignity, sovereignty, and so on, it's because we don't want just to praise them, we want to realize them. And I think that's what's interesting for me was for from the readings of the Communistische Organisation, where also the critique of the revisionism within the Soviet Union. And this was not a moral issue. It's just because, they were, it's not the fact that they were sellouts. Okay, we can talk that Khrushchev maybe was a sellout. I, I think it was just a... So I I think the, the problem is that well, oh, we have to criticize even good comrades because they wasted that opportunity and they gave us the world we are living right now. They destroyed the shield that Vijay was mentioned before, not only for the third world countries, but also for so for the working class in the West. And uh, one of the reasons they did that actually is because they started to trust imperialism. You know, Gorbachev is still uh, uh, complaining about the fact that they trusted NATO. <laughs> the lies about not expanding in the east, the east. I mean, fuck it! Did you didn't you read marxist Leninism? didn't you know that no he didn't because he was talking about humanity he was talking about dignity he was full of this shit in his writings and uh, now yeah maybe it took so long for many countries to have a kind of an alternative a competitive alternative I think it's funny that it comes from China somehow because China actually was able to exploit the uh, was 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 fed by western imperialism that's something that a good friend of Vijay, I think, uh, Gerald Orne always insists about talking that you would not have China uh, without the Sino-Soviet split. You would not have capitalist China without the Sino-Soviet split. They will not, you will not have this competitor for Western imperialism if they didn't sell to imperialism, to Western imperialism. That's what they did. They did in many, also they did that on a foreign policy perspective. They were supporting apartheid South Africa against Cuba in Angola, for example. And, uh, and now it's funny. I mean, okay, I, I don't like so much Xi Jinping, but I must confess sometimes I find funny that it's such a, a nightmare for the Western imperialism. His old friend, his old friend, the same old friend. But yeah, we're not talking about sympathy here. You're still stick to science I think and this I don't agree with a little phrase that Vijay used I don't think he really cared about it I mean it's not uh, I don't think it's theory it's just a way to say it, that he was talking about surplus capital in Soviet Union there was no surplus capital the aid the Soviet Union was giving was not out of economic reasons it was fortified of revolution but for China it is surplus capital it is and it it uh coincides with the interests of some other countries, but it's out of economic necessities that at the end, this process must end. That at the end, the imperialist camps, they not imperialists maybe, let's not talk about it, but let's talk about capital exports. Let's talk about market shares. They saturate. And they have to clash. And at this point it's not so important which is the front line. It can be Ukraine, it can be other countries, but this clash has to happen. And what, what does the communist do? What does the communist do in this situation? They do they talk about human suffering. We would like maybe. We we are forced to somehow, but we look at contradiction. We have we look at contradiction to exploit in order to do the revolution. It sounds so impossible right now, but it's our duty. And I conclude with two questions. I don't think, and that's why I think we have to pursue science. Because otherwise, it's very easy to be instrumentalized by our inner bourgeoisie, maybe the one that has connection with uh, other markets and want to pursue another path. Maybe it's not the history of Germany, it's not the history of Italy. I'm not sure, but for sure it is the history of many Third World countries, right now, supposed Third World countries. And uh, so uh, we we have to pursue science not to be instrumentalized. Otherwise, can, if we don't answer the question whether this country is socialist or not, how can we say that Cambodia was invaded by Vietnam not because of an imperi- not because of an imperialist reason? Okay. That was the first asked question, actually. How, how can, you, how can we say that? How can we say that, uh, Cambodia was not invaded out of an imperialist reason if it was, uh, if it was, if we don't answer the question whether it was or a socialist country or not? And how can, and how can we say that South Africa is, for example, is not using the fight against apartheid as a way to build his capitalist and, uh, and the fact that the communist party is at the government doesn't tell me anything about that. The Communist Party of South Africa, the heroic communist party, is at the government it's that, that was the last one so that's why I, I would like to have these two questions answered, and that's why I think we cannot get rid of science.
8: Can you hear me? Uh, Thanks Vijay for the very uh, informative uh, input, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, a few more things. Uh, You mentioned that the economic sovereignty of the countries in the global south and in the countries which were former colonies uh, is greatly undermined today. Uh, Would you say that in these countries the interest of the working class and the interest of the capitalist class uh, overlap or are the same in its struggle for gaining economic uh, sovereignty? And secondly, I was wondering uh, how would you categorize India today, in the sense that there is great monopolization taking place. Um, in the list for top ten richest people today, two are from India, and there's increasingly uh, capital export taking place, and also a great repression of the working working class going on there. How would you say, uh, or what would you say about the role that India is playing in building up this anti? U.S. hegemonic world order, world front, rather, uh, would you categorize it as something progressive? And if yes, um, are here again to the interest of the working class in India and the capitalist class, uh, overlap. Hi, Vijay. Um, thanks a lot for everything, uh, you
9: said. You're speaking from my heart. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, in, in one sense, I, I, uh, kind of, uh, dis- dis- disagree, uh, no, I agree with my Italian friend, but on a different way. Um, I do think that the science is important for us and that we, we, we have to study it. But I actually don't believe you that you say, you're saying that, uh, the theory is not as important for you because, uh, uh I think you, my friend, you, you studied it, uh, very deeply and you, you, you gave the right answers, uh, by saying that what people are experiencing is the reality and uh, with the concrete analysis of the reality we as communists we we have to build our strategy ab- around that and not just on a theoretical level without looking at this so um that's the first point but uh, what i i kind of have a question um not as close to that which is for countries like Sri Lanka, for example, which um, have very big problems about uh, building their product, productive forces. You talked about that. Um, how can they fight their own bourgeoisie well um, without uh, destabilizing the, the country as a whole? I mean, I, I understand that on the agitation uh, level, it's very easy to say, um, you are selling out our country and we are working against that. And we can only build sovereignty by building socialism. I mean, Russia and China are very good examples of that. But, um, if the subjective factor is not developed well enough, it's dangerous, you know, to destabilize the, um, the capitalist state at the same time the aggression is very high and not being able to successfully defend it. So what uh, do you suggest as a strategy for that? Thank you.
10: Um, yeah. Hello Vijay and uh, thanks uh, for your presentation. Um, yeah, um, I wanted to say something about the um, theme uh, that uh, every uh, people should struggle against uh, the enemy in, in their land. Uh, so I, I come from Syria. I've been here in Germany since eight years, and I was so happy that the you know uh, the comrades here here focus on their uh, struggle in uh, in the land. Uh, according to what Lippner said, that uh, the main enemy is in your on land. Uh, however, then I found, uh, some deviation in the understanding of this, uh, theme. And, uh, for example, if you talk to them about, uh, U.S. imperialism, they call you anti-American, you know, like, like as, as if that, uh, uh, something that want to deviate them from the right struggle, as, as if the, struggle against USA is something in contradiction with the struggle in Germany. Or if you say, okay, I want to go to demonstrate uh, for Palestina, then some say that oh that will uh, uh you know break the left because they are they have a different opinion about it and you know we want to unite the left so uh, you know, then we go to the demonstration with very few, like with people of color, like the Gnosen, the other Gnosen are busy and so on, because it's not the main struggle in, because they lost this uh, connection between, you know, like the main enemy in your land doesn't mean that in, in the, um, level of how to analyze and understand the world that you lose, you know, the, the, the whole connection to the imperialist as a system. Yeah. Um I would just like to hear your comment about that. Thank
3: you um First of all, thank you for your talk, and I just want to comment something. I just want to comment something. Um, I don't have a question because I've heard you in the beginning talking a lot about the word sovereignty. I can pronounce that good, but and then you mentioned Chile and the their constitution. So I've heard on Marxists from, for example, Santiago Armesilla that made a huge analysis about this process and why it was refused. I mean, you got a point, but now get back to the word sovereignty and this constitution that they wanted to approve. Well, was kind of giving away the territory territorial integrity of the country that's how Armesia and other Marxists see that I just wanted to comment um, that he concludes it's like a constitution of the undefined left forces in Chile and perhaps you know him perhaps not, you might take a look on that and consider that as well because of the word you use that much in the beginning, sovereignty. Thank you.
11: Um, I want to comment on the thing that you said at the beginning, that we have to take seriously that um most of the revolution started in the poorest countries. I think that's a very important thing to observe, that we have to trust in the power of the working pl- class of the poor countries. So now I want to ask a question about your concept of dignity, because... You didn't talk that much about the contradiction of the working class and the bourgeois class. And I think we have to talk about that because, of course, there are states like Palestine and Western Sahara. You mentioned them. And of course, there the people have to fight against the oppression, against the occupation from the foreign uh, countries. But at the main time, we always have to talk about the bourgeois class in that country. Um, how they always can go back and step stop the working class in the back, as it, for example, happened in China in the fight where there were temporary alliances. But we always have to say in the propaganda and the agitation that the bourgeois class is never our friend, uh, even if we are working in a tactical situation with them. So I think that's a very important po- point to discuss. And... um Then I, yeah, I want to make a comment on China. Um, why I think it's not a scholastic question, because if we say we can trust in China, like we did in Soviet Union, then we can see them as a partner and we don't have to. Uh, say in agitation that they are not our friend and they can stab us in the back so that's why I think it's another theoretical question but a very important because either they could save the lives of millions of people or not or just for a temporary situation and that's a big difference I think
2: Hello, thank you so much um, I am Carmen Camacho uh, from Venezuela um, I am from the region from Hugo Chavez um, uh last Like a a Latina, I want to ask you, what can we as Latin American immigrants do to fight against colonialism in Europa? And thank you so much that you are uh, speaking now about uh, Puerto Rico and the colonialism, uh, because nobody uh, speaks about Puerto Rico. I need to be really quickly. Yeah, because... um, yeah, so uh revolutionary, we need to um to think always like in another people, you know, like like in a group. Thank you so much again.
3: In the issue the issue we're talking about here is neo colonialism. And I'm I'm very glad that we went to talking about strategy instead of ideology, because it's way more important to know what you want to do. And the point you were making when you were talking about Zambia was that the IMF and the European banks are putting heavy pressure on that country. And me being from Poland, I was like, I, I kind of remember that from the 70s, 80s and 90s in Poland, where the same thing about copper happened to a socialist country that got destroyed because of it. And um I want to ask, what should... our our European strategy be to deal with the IMF and the European banks and how we should position ourselves towards that.
1: Wow. Wow. Okay. Listen, guys, firstly, I would like to congratulate you for an amazing set of observations and questions. There's no way I can get into these in detail, but I can't tell you how happy this makes me that there are so many people, uh, around the world, but here in Germany, thinking about the same things as I think about all the time. So, you know, I'm happy to be in this family of conversation. And I really mean that sincerely. Um, It's not often that you'll have people ask with such sincerity and clarity about different parts of the world. I mean, I'm going to answer in a funny way, okay? Not sequentially, but I'm going to just try to come to all the questions as, as in a way as best as I can. Um it's true that um, in a country like Germany or wherever you live, um, we build our own movements. We have to build the confidence and clarity of the working class in that country. By the way, for somebody in Germany to say U.S. imperialism is not um, important, I would like to ask them what they think of the Ramstein military base, um, and what they think of all the other U.S. military bases in German soil. Um, you know, at least the Irish Constitution has a clause of neutrality. Don't see that in the German constitution. Uh, It is interesting that you have military bases of a foreign power, uh, even till today. And I don't know, it's funny for somebody to say, oh, US imperialism, that's anti-American. It's not a bad thing to develop some of that sentiment, frankly. Um, It is a curiosity that as we build our movements in the working class and and the, the, the peasantry, it is a curiosity that we sometimes forget um, that the working class and peasantry must have um, a broad international consciousness developments in the world you know uh, one doesn't patronize um, people because they may not be able to travel to other places but they must uh, have in our core understanding, in the political program of a force, political force, got to have an understanding of what's happening in the world, you know. And when I joined my movement as a young person, uh, in all our party classes, we would uh, learn about what's happening in the world and so on. It was considered very important. And I, I must say, I was fortunate to join a political project, which had given up in 1964 The idea that there was one center of international communism, you know, Uh, we continue to have fraternal relations with um, the uh, Communist Party in the Soviet Union, but we didn't see that party as the leading party. Same way today, you know, build your own formations, but we don't need to have a sense that, you know, my comrade said, You know, the Chinese might betray us. Of course they might. So could anybody, you know, so could your own party uh, might take a terrible position, you know, on something or the other. Uh, We don't build political formations or political lines with the assumption of permanent friends or permanent enemies or anything like that. You build sincerely to build the confidence and capacity of the working class where you are building that, that movement. You know, that's to me the most important thing. The theory I was taught as a young militant uh, was to try always to as my comrade technician said uh, to always build the theory based on as accurate an understanding of the reality you know when i first joined the movement i was sent to uh, organize cleaners and and loaders at delhi international airport this was a trade union struggle and i was completely naive i went in there started talking to people i didn't do any investigation any study uh, and i was you know, we were shot at. Why? Because we didn't know that the loaders and cleaners in the airport were all already organized, not into a union, but into a smuggling ring. Um, you know, it was an, a really good uh, experience of learning about the concrete conditions uh, that must be analyzed before you naively go and say, I'm going to organize the working class. Uh, you know, absolutely accurate understanding is necessary. But why I'm hesitant always about the debates about too much, you know, scholasticism in our movement is that let the accuracy be linked to uh, building mass fronts in your own countries, because you learn the most about what is possible in the world today. Uh, You know, people who make revolutions sitting at their desk uh, don't understand the world properly. You know, in our institute, we say that Marx wrote the wrong thing in the 11th thesis on Feuerbach. It's completely wrong. Marx's formulation, at least in the English version, was the philosophers have hitherto understood the world. The point, however, is to change it. Remember that? The 11th thesis. I think that's the terrible formulation by Marx. Because actually, the better formulation from my perspective is not that. The better formulation is those who are trying to change the world have a better understanding of it. Because when you're actually trying to change the real world, You grasp the granite blocks in the world. You see what is possible, where the working class is limited. Cannot have a romantic idea of the working class anywhere. Working class has got its own limitations, as Gramsci said, there's contradictory consciousness and so on. So those comrades, you know, who want to have a debate about this and that, I will always say, how much, comrade, how much experience have you had trying to build a movement? Uh, How much have you seen Of the temperature of our world today, you know, to have an accurate understanding of the world, we have to be in the trenches building a movement and we must do it not in a dogmatic way where we go into working class neighborhoods and start lecturing them, you know, about something or the other. But we're trying to build a movement that starts with the desires and demands of people. Brings me to the question from our comrade in India, you know, who asked about India. I mean, India is like many places, an extremely complicated place. It's itself is basically like Europe. You know, it's the United States of India. Honestly, Um, every Indian state is like a European country. Uh, It has been very difficult for the left to advance in sections of the Indian um, uh, Republic because we are blocked by the wretchedness of the social hierarchies in the world. You know, like caste, for instance, caste hierarchies have blocked the advance of socialism One of the things, lessons I learned from the Chinese experiment is early into the revolutionary period, they attacked social hierarchies. You know, they attacked um, the patriarchal hierarchies. They attacked foot binding and so on. In India... Communism developed in the states like Tamil Nadu, in um, in the Telangana region, in Andhra Pradesh, in Kerala, because these had social reform movements that came before. We are the heirs of older social reform movements. In northern India, and in the Gangetic Plain, from where the Hindu right derives its strength, um, there's wretched social hierarchy. So we have to recognize that. Our communism has to be confident enough to attack social hierarchies. You know, if you're going to revive the left in Europe, you've got to attack social hierarchies. You've got to be at the front in the defense of immigrants. You have to be in the front in the attack against patriarchy, against racism and so on. You can't build socialism if you don't have a society. You know, the premise of socialism is a society. And communists who say, no, we are only working in, you know, the class struggle. This is the class struggle. You know, these are elements of the class struggle. Brings me to to Sri Lanka. There was a mass demonstration. Okay, I'm impatient with people calling things color revolutions. There was a mass demonstration. There have been 16 IMF austerity agreements with the bourgeoisie of Sri Lanka. There was a mass demonstration. But look. You know, I've talked to the leader of the Sri Lankan trade union movement. His name, by the way, you'll be interested to know is Stalin. That's his actual name. His birth name is Stalin. Uh, He's the leader of the Sri Lankan trade union movement. He was in jail for many months this year. Well, look, frankly, the Sri Lankan left is weak. It's not prepared to come to power, Um, which is why at the back of the mass demonstrations, you have Ranil Vikramasinghe who's a basic stooge of the bourgeoisie and the Americans coming into power. Similar phenomena in, in, in Egypt in, after Tahrir in 2011. We see this over and over again. we got to recognize that, look, people are going to rise up. These movements are going to take place. These are uh, essentially a response to terrible social conditions. But in many places in the world, the left is simply not powerful enough to canalize that energy um, into a kind of revolutionary dynamic. Just because people are rising up is not a revolution. People are rising up, that's a rebellion. Tahrir Square, that was not a revolution. It was a rebellion of the people. There was simply no organized force uh, to take that revolutionary energy which was there. It was a rebellion with a great deal of revolutionary energy. The left was basically weak and in many ways absent from that, from leadership in that struggle, which is why the Ikhwan, the Muslim Brotherhood was able to canalize a lot of it. And then they went into a frontal struggle with the military. So we as the left need to recognize that. You're going to see protest movements start in Germany, you know, already seeing the protest movements against the cost of living rise and so on. Who's going to take advantage of it? The best organized force, you know, whether it's the far right or it's the center right or whatever. The left is weak. Look at Linker. They're in the middle of a constant long term dilemma about what their identity is. You know, Uh, some parts of the Linker wants to be the Green Party. Other parts of Dilinka wants to be, uh, alliance for Deutschland. You know, what is a left political formation in Germany? You got to come to terms with that. You got to be there building your, ca- the capacity and strength of the working class. It's confidence. You have to be the heralds of the working class. When rebellions take place, will you be there to provide, accompany the rebellion, provide some kind of leadership? In India today, you know, it's not a question of, do we ally with the bourgeoisie or not? The bourgeoisie in India is a wretched bourgeoisie. There is almost no national patriotic content to it. But that doesn't mean that at some levels it doesn't have contradictions with imperialism. That's why Modi was at the Shanghai cooperation organization meeting. You know, the issue isn't do you support that or do you not support it? What we support is rifts in the world. I don't want a world with unipolar control, you know, where we are all basically under the dominion of the IMF. I would like to see cracks take place in the international situation, which might give us room to advance our own struggles. There's no way that we sit back and we wait for somebody else to do our work for us. The Chinese government, that's ridiculous. I never said that and I would never say that. We have to build the strength of the working class and the peasantry. At the same time, we require, we need Cracks in the dominion above. We need those cracks to open up. If there are contradictions between the Indian bourgeoisie or sections of it and the uh, imperialists, all well and good. Let them open up. Let's see if that provides us with new opportunities. Let's do a study of that analytic moment at the time. And you know, the question of Chile, look, you can have all kinds of uh, criticisms of the constitution. Frankly, it's Not true that the constitution was giving away territory to foreign powers. It was going to, in fact, um, give people right to water and so on. It was quite an amazing constitution. The problems are otherwise. I mean, I don't have time to get into this. It had to do with how the election was conducted. Tharua Zuniga Silva and I wrote an, uh, an article about this. You can go and find it. I mean, I want to end on the note of Palestine, if that's okay. I know in Germany, this is a hugely sensitive issue, okay? Um, why is it sensitive? You know, uh, Germany has a history of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust. And the Germans ha- haven't properly faced up to that ugly history, frankly. I'm being very frank with you. And as a consequence, maybe it's guilt or whatever the hell it is. You don't want to touch the issue of Israel's um, colonialism, colonial settler-colonial uh, presence in, in the lands of the Palestinians. That's your problem. you got to deal with it. Uh, I understand what the sister said earlier when she said that at demonstrations, it's mainly people of color who come for them and so on. Um, Germany has to deal with its own history. And I don't think you have. Uh, I I actually don't think so. I think this thing that, no, we can't talk about it. That's your problem, guys. And it's just the same with the French. They don't want to talk about colonialism. It's the same with the English. They're basically banning talk about imperialism and they want to make Winston Churchill a hero. Winston Churchill for Bengal, where I I was born, is our Hitler. Um, Because of his policies, three million people died in Bengal at the same time as the Holocaust. Most people don't know about that. Uh, Friends, Europe has to wake up to its own ugly history. Uh, The Palestinians deserve our complete solidarity, and the emancipation of the Palestinians is a key demand for the international left. If the Germans have a problem with that, you can sit that one out. But we have a problem with you then.
0: Okay. (laughs)
1: Thanks a that, lot. That was a heavy ending. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting. Um, yeah. Yes, thanks a but lot. No, I was just responding because what that sister said marked me a lot. You know, it, when she said that people just don't go because they say it'll divide the German left. Um, you know, I'm not keen on dividing any left, but divisions in the left produce confusion in the working class. And that's why I'm very opposed to sectarianism in the left. Um, not because I'm against the discussions that people have, but when people on the left go to the streets and attack each other, the disorientation that creates among the working class is fatal, fatal. And I don't think we see that enough. We need to debate among ourselves. But when we go out onto the street to have newspapers that are principally of the left, attacking the left, it doesn't explain or clarify anything to somebody in the working class. It is totally paralyzing for the left just a bit of advice having been experienced some of this a lot
0: okay thank you for your input vj thanks for being with us for two hours it was really nice um yes yeah, so we defined a lot of tests and uh of course study study studies is still one of them so a little joke for me um yes yeah, so thank you guys for being here and
7: vj hope this
1: Bye. Thanks a lot.